This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome back to Death by Southwest, the podcast where each week we bring you a different grisly murder story unique to the American Southwest. I am your host, Margot, and I'm here with my sister and co-host, Jenna. And this is part two of Gary Triano. So episode seven was Gary Triano. We did part one and it's a pretty big story. So we are going to get into the rest of it today. Episode eight. Yeah. Part two. Gary Triano. Gary Triano. You got it. You got it. And um, it's been a day. We're not going to, we're not going to do the whole kind of geography sense of place because we already did that with part one. Episode seven. Right. So I think it would be redundant to do that again, but I will say that we had... We, we, I picked Jenna up to do this recording like hours ago and we are just now getting to it. We quite the afternoon here in Tucson. You picked me up at one, I believe, one-ish. Yeah. yeah and it is now 5.30. That's right. It was a day. Are you going to tell them what kind of day? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could. Well, uh, you don't have to. Yeah. Just like a, a loose overview of our day. I picked Jenna up and we were going to record. It was like a very, it, it is a very rainy day here in Tucson, which are kind of few and far between. And I know both of us love that. Love it. Yeah. Really nice. So we were settling in for like a cozy afternoon of recording and um, Mark was not feeling well yesterday and today ended up going to the ER because he was feeling so not well um, and checked himself into the ER. And I thought it was going to be kind of like a quick, like in and out, we'll see what's happening and give get, him a thing of antibiotic yeah, or whatever. Right. And did not turn out that way. He has to actually stay in the hospital overnight, um, which is a real bummer, but he is going to, I think, be okay. But he asked us to kind of, can you go to my house and get my work phone and this and that? And of course, we were like, absolutely, we'll hold on the recording. We'll go do these things. And as we were doing these things, we came across a stray dog running down the street here in Tucson, which is not an uncommon thing in Tucson or probably anywhere, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know. Well, I guess you don't know, but me and Jenna are both see a stray animal. We're going to try and get it. So I pulled over, got out, ran after this, you know, Rottweiler looking dog. Couldn't get him. So we like zipped to Mark's house really quick. I ran inside and got some chicken and a, le- and a dog leash, got back in the car and went out to search for this dog. You missed a major part oh. in my mind. Oh yeah. Share that. The huge, huge hawk, right as we pulled up to Mark, was sitting on the, Mark's home was sitting on the fence, Mm -hmm. which to me, that's like weird animal business. Not that hawks are like, oh my gosh, you never see them, Mm -hmm. but I rarely see one 
that close. Seven feet in front of me. Huge. Just too. sitting there. He was staring. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Big hawk. And then and then he kind of flew off that fence and up into the the neighboring house to Mark's. Jenna got a great picture. We can picture. post that picture. Yeah, that's a great picture. And so I ran in, got chicken, got a leash, came out. We went back out on the road driving. I think you have to explain the chicken. Oh, because I want to have something to kind of like tempt the dog to come to me. It's a stray dog. He doesn't know me. So, I'm, you know, I'm trying to encourage him to come my way. So I got some very delicious chicken. Very fragrant. Fragrant, yeah. So we went back out. We didn't see him. We couldn't find him again. And so we went back to Mark's house. I packed up his little overnight bag and we got in the car and we were heading to drop off some the keys for his work stuff. And and literally as we're pulling out, I said to Jenna, you know what? I'm so sad we didn't get that dog, but please let me not see it again because now we don't have the chicken. And now we're just like, we're on a mission. Let's get this stuff done for Mark. Let's get the recording done and get home. I don't want to run into this dog again. And literally three seconds later, there's the dog running down the street. Mm-hmm. So I pull over again at like in the Home Depot parking lot. I get out, I start running after it. And this this other couple pulls over and she's, and this woman got out and she said, is that your dog? I said, no, it's just a stray dog I'm trying to get. She said, I'm a dog groomer. I have dog treats. So she gave me a handful of dog treats and I take off sprinting down the road, trying to get him. Couldn't Full get sprint. him. Full, Full sprint. Full sprint. <laughs> yes. I just stayed by the car because someone had to. That's right. Both important roles. And I couldn't get him. So I came back to the car drove after him, pulled over in the middle of... Not pulled over, just just stopped. stopped. Yeah, I just stopped because he was running into like major traffic. So I just stopped the car in the middle of the road, got out and ran after him. And unfortunately, this dog is, you know, he doesn't know me. And I'm calling after him like, hey, dog, and whistling. And do you want a treat? And he's looking at me and then running away faster, like he was not interested. This dog is still on the run, on the loose. Yeah, it just breaks my heart. So, I mean, we really tried for probably an hour to get this dog and just couldn't. He just, every time I ran after him, he ran faster. And Mm -hmm. and I don't want to like push him further from his home if he has one or into traffic unnecessarily. That's what I thought when I... That second time when I saw you running after him and yeah. he crossed, he would have done it anyways. I know. And I thought, oh, crap. Yeah. If this dog gets hit with Margo running after him. Oh, that's it. I will I, like, lose. You know. We're going to be in the vet for the rest of the night. I will lose my mind. Or not because he's already dead. But oh, yes, I understand. You would have felt awful even if it wouldn't have been your fault. It's just like yeah. I didn't want him you to be chasing after him whilst he got hit. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't. To our knowledge. And he's he still ran, out there. Yeah, he ran into a park. So I don't know. Really hurts my heart to not be able to catch a dog when I see them out in the world without a collar and just alone. Um, but that's unfortunately not an uncommon thing. So that was our afternoon. And then we finally made it back to my house. And here we are ready to record Gary Triano part two. Yay. Yay. So we're not going to do the kind of geography sense of place since we already did that. That would be redundant. But um, let's just recap a little bit about for anybody who maybe hasn't listened to the first episode or, you know, 
has a bad memory like me and you. Yeah, I mean, recap for me. Yeah, okay. So the last time we got into um, the murder of Gary Triano, we never actually got to the murder. We basically got to know Gary a bit, who was a wealthy, high-powered businessman, a philanthropist, kind of a staple on Tucson's social scene, and someone that many people considered to be kind of a pillar of the community here in Tucson. He was divorced twice. I think we got through the fact that he met his first wife, Mary, in college, got married, had two kids, got divorced. Married Pam, Pamela Phillips. Second wife. Second wife. They had two kids, Trevor and Lois. And then I believe in the last episode, we did get to where their kind of their marriage fell apart Mm -hmm. as as Gary's finances were also falling apart. And he was quite, from what I recall, he was quite understanding. I think you said his girlfriend after he had separated and or divorced from his second wife kind of asked what happened. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, she met me as like a a wealthy individual. And then that didn't. And then I was no longer a wealthy individual. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed like a very understanding man. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we kind of, I think, last time talked about how 1993 was a pretty bad year for Gary. He got divorced. He filed for bankruptcy and he was fighting to gain custody of his kids from his second marriage with Pam. But despite all of that, 1993 was certainly not as bad as 1996 for Gary. Specifically, November 1st, 1996, which was the day that Gary Triano took his last breath. November 1st was a lovely fall day here in Tucson. I was just literally writing down November 1st, 1996. See this little half parenthesis? I was going to say, what was the weather? (laughs) (laughs) I'm way ahead of you. Um, Yeah, it was a lovely fall day. I mean, November is a great month here in Tucson. What, like mid, low 70s? Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. Sunny, nice. Um, And Gary was feeling pretty good. He was, yes, he had been you know, recently twice divorced and had filed for bankruptcy. But Gary was, as I think we we covered kind of ad nauseum in the first episode, he was kind of a very positive guy, a guy who was resilient and a confident kind of dude. So even though he had been through all of this kind of hardship recently, he he seemed to really believe that he wouldn't be broke for long. He wouldn't be heartbroken. He wouldn't be financially struggling. He would pull himself out of this. Sounds like he thought, oh, these things are just like speed bumps, speed bumps in life. Absolutely. That was definitely, from what I understand, seemed to be his mentality. So the woman that he had, uh, we heard from her, Robin, several times in, in the first part of this, you know, they were at this point broken up, but that was his most recent long-term relationship. And she had just had his child. So his fifth child. Um, and he was, you know, days away from his 53rd birthday And he thought, I'm going to start celebrating early with a a lovely round of golf with my friends at the Westin La Paloma. Hmm. So Gary was enjoying life to the best of his ability. And um, I don't know what you call somebody who's like playing golf, like a golfer, like flexing his golf stroke. Like, what do you mean? What do you call him? I don't know. Like, I feel like, isn't there like a term like, um, He's teeing off. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, maybe. There's like some type of. I'm looking for something that I'm not finding, but like a way to be like Gary was flexing his golf skills. Oh, I don't he think was that's really the thing. He was um, teeing off. He was swinging his swing. He was swinging his 
club. Club. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So he was, uh, you know, Gary was Golfing. enjoying his golf. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and while he was doing this and enjoying his his kind of golfing day, a hundred of his closest friends and family were gathering at his home, unbeknownst to him. He had no idea about this. Who who put this together? Um, well, because he was divorced a second time. Was he still with his girlfriend, Robin? I think they were broken up at this point. So okay. I don't know. Some type of friends or family perhaps was putting this together for him. So his closest, a hundred of his closest friends and family were gathering at his home Pour, and this is so specific, but um, I read several things that said that they were pouring Beaujolais, which hmm. I think is a type of wine or champagne. It's wine. It's a seasonal wine. Oh, okay. Uh, Beaujolais, Beaujolais comes out once a year, I believe. Okay. And it's different based on the holiday. Grapes. Yeah, holiday wine. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. So they were pouring Beaujolais and waiting to surprise the man who was always kind of the life of every party with this big blowout surprise birthday celebration. Unfortunately, Gary never made it to this party. Hmm. While Gary's friends were kicking off the party at his house with booze and music, Gary was finishing up his golf and then heading to his car in the La Paloma parking lot. When a scene unfolded that was hauntingly similar to the opening moments from one of my favorite movies, Casino. Do you know that scene? That movie? I think I do. Okay. So let me set up the scene for you. So Robert De Niro is walking from this kind of bougie hotel to his car, and there's a voiceover. When you love someone, you've got to trust them. There's no other way. You've got to give them the key to everything that's yours. Otherwise, what's the point? And then he gets in his car. And for a while, I believed that's the kind of love I had. And it explodes, the whole thing. Now, this is eerily similar to what happened to Gary, minus one very specific detail. Robert De Niro's character survived that explosion. Gary did not. So Gary was walking through the parking lot at La Paloma, and he was getting into this car that apparently he was borrowing, a big red Lincoln Town car. Why was he borrowing? Remember, he was bankrupt. He was broke. So he was kind of leaning on people that he hadn't burned in business before to lend him No car. pun intended. Ooh, good call. <laughs> uh, so he's leaning on people to kind of, you know, help him financially, help him uh, build up his wealth again, additional investments, and yeah, a car. So Gary got into this borrowed Lincoln town car. And was it a parking lot? Was it a... What do you call uh, parking garage? Was it a parking lot a valet so he, situation? No, he was parked in the lot. So open air parking lot. Open air parking okay. lot. Yep. And so he got in his car and something on the floor of the passenger seat caught his attention. Kind of looked like a cigar box. And he thought, hmm, I mean, I don't know what he thought I was in his brain, but assuming he thought maybe, oh, one of my friends left me a little birthday surprise. Cool. Um, and this is an important detail that I haven't said up until now. Gary was uh, very well known apparently for not locking his car or his home. He just, he believed kind of that he was invincible and untouchable. So he never locked his car. He never locked his house. He felt that people were just never going to take advantage of him 
or steal from him or anything like that. Did he think people were never going to blank, steal from him, whatever from him because it's him? Or did he inherently like overly trust people? I think a little bit of both probably, Hmm. if I had to guess. So his car was unlocked. So it wouldn't be that weird that somebody left a cigar box or a present on the seat of the passenger car. It also wasn't his car. True. It was not his car. Nonetheless, as it turns out, this is this, the cigar box. This was a surprise that no one is ever hoping for. Mm. It was a remotely detonated pipe bomb that was 17 inches long, three inches in diameter and filled with one pound of gunpowder. And when Gary got into his car and reached down for that, what he thought was a gift, he was killed instantly. You have thoughts? You you looked at me like I have thoughts. I mean, I do. I haven't gathered them all. Okay. 17 inches by three inches. So 17 inches long by three inches in diameter. Diameter's around. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like this this thick. quite bigger, large bigger your quite little large. hand is like <laughs> that's like two, like one two three. Yeah, yeah three yeah quite large and a pound so it weighed a pound at least mm-hmm. he opened it and it went it actually i think had nothing to do with him opening it because it was remotely detonated so that means someone was on the property right. on the premises saw him get into the car and maybe reach for it and then did it or maybe they waited till he opened it Either way, the bomb going off had nothing to do with what Gary was doing. It had to do with someone in a a vicinity pressing a a button. button. According to the autopsy report, the explosion was so severe that it blew open Gary's skull and ruptured both of his eyes. Uh, Metal from the pipe bomb flew into his brain. His right hand, except for the pinky, was pretty much blown completely off and went flying out of the car along with the windshield and other parts of the car nearly 200 yards away with some of it landing in La Paloma's swimming pool. The blast melted his clothes onto his body, split his abdomen wide open, and severely injured multiple organs, but prominently his liver. Uh, Of course, this is unfortunate on many levels, but after a nine-hour autopsy, It was determined that Gary, prior to this, for his age, about to be 53, was actually in really good shape and could have lived to be a very old, old man. Were people shocked by that or are we shocked by that? Well, I don't think, I don't know if anybody was shocked by it, but, you know. uh... Rain. Oh, Okay, I was I was thinking like, is that static? That's it. So guys, it's raining here in Tucson. So any kind of um, background noise or whatever that you're hearing, my house is like has like a tin roof kind of. I feel like <laughs> it's an adobe house. So there's there's quite a bit of rain happening in Tucson right now. So throughout this episode, you may hear um, some background noise or some some rain, and that's that's why because it's raining. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. 
So I, I don't know if people were surprised that he was in, in such good shape, but it's just, it just adds to the kind of unfortunate aspect of the situation that he could have lived for a very long time. This was an untimely death. His organs were in good condition. He had minimal coronary damage. He didn't even have alcohol in his system at the time. He The only thing that showed up on the lab test is that he had some caffeine in his system and the what they found in his stomach was tortillas, olives, green chili, tomato, and onion, which means he, he was eating salsa. Yeah, he had been eating chips and salsa. Well, green olives doesn't kind of match a, up. Yeah, kind of a weird thing. But, but maybe he had a, maybe a friend. No, because there was no alcohol. Maybe yeah. a friend had a martini and he, and ate, the he ate the olive. Maybe the salsa had olives in it. it could be nachos. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I was watching NCIS the other day and the. The coroner was doing an autopsy on, you know, the victim in that episode and his like girlfriend or the person he was dating walked in and he was just hanging up the phone and she was like, oh, who are you talking to? And he said, oh, I was just ordering a blue crab sandwich, like a blue crab po' boy or something. Mm. And she was like, oh, that sounds great. What made you want to have that? And he said, oh, because I just did the stomach contents in this victim and the last meal they had was blue crab and like really high end blue crab. And she looked at him like, ew. And he was like, come on, I'm around death all day. Like I have to find some joy. It's normalized for him. Yeah, totally. Well, and different, but like when I went to see Super Size Me, I mean, Mm -hmm. a decade plus ago. Sure. Most people left, I think most people left like, oh my God, that guy, thank God he was only doing that for six months or a year and like, oh my gosh, his health. And I left thinking I'd like a Big Mac. (laughs) (laughs) I can get on board with that. We went on a, we took a left turn here on this story. I think sometimes that's okay. And it's not meant in disrespect though, I probably will cut that because we did have a comment that was like, they're so concerned about being respectful that it almost comes off as disrespectful. But this is not me or you, I don't think being, con- I mean, maybe that last comment you made, it's just I've got a weird mind. Yeah, it's just Most where your brain's do, going. But yeah, I'll just say it out loud because I'm here on a podcast. Yeah, and I have the utmost respect and and sympathy for every victim and family and everyone we talk about. But at the end of the day, we it are- It sparks thoughts. It does. We're retelling a a- horrific story and it does it does spark thoughts exactly thank you you said that well yeah. i've tried to get better about repeating what you say but i failed there cool all right so sadly gary did not have the chance to live to a ripe old age the hands on his gold mavado watch officially stopped at 5:38 p.m. and according to multiple articles he was officially pronounced dead at 5:40 p.m. Which I see you shaking your head and it does raise questions because, well, maybe it doesn't raise questions, but it raises the... does for me. Okay. I was going to say it like raises the thought of like, well, that that watch must have kept ticking because there's no way that he was killed and the watch stopped and literally two minutes later... The, the paramedics were there and pronouncing him dead. Unless La Paloma had on-site ENT or EMTs, ENTs, um, <laughs> maybe, you know, even, but I don't even think. Even so, La Paloma is pretty big. You're going to hear this explosion. Nobody's walking up to an exploded car literally exactly two minutes after it happens. Yeah. No, it just doesn't happen like the that. The Mavado was taken on for a while. That's a, uh, that's a, it's a testament to Mavado's, um, you know, engineering there. Movado, contact us. <laughs> Movado, the watch that keeps on ticking after you die. 
that's, that's a good <laughs> oh well, that's a good one <laughs> that's terrible so i don't know there might be some discrepancy there one of those things is wrong either the watch didn't actually stop at 538 or he was not actually pronounced dead at 540 so that i gotta look further into it um an article in the tucson weekly described gary's murder and i thought they did it in a in a articulate way they said quote the hit also befitted Triano's flamboyance, his friends conceded, a spectacular explosion at the exclusive La Paloma, which closed down traffic east and west of 3800 East Sunrise Drive at rush hour the weekend before the presidential election. So essentially saying his death was as big and spectacular, even though that's kind of a terrible word to describe a murder, but big and spectacular as his life was or as he lived his life, which I thought was poetic-ish. So investigators quickly determined that the bomb was triggered by a remote control, which made the question on everyone's mind, whose finger was on that trigger? Was it one of Gary's enemies? A scorned business partner? Someone who he had wronged on a bad business deal? I don't know. We'll see. Um, the Pima County Sheriff Clarence Dupnik said... Gary had huge gambling debts. He made deals between people who financed and built casinos, and some of those projects were unsuccessful. At the time of his death, he was still very heavily in debt with little or no income coming in. And Dupnik also said that the bomb appeared to be a professional hit. A professional hit meaning mob. Right. Yeah, exactly. So a professional hit. I guess a professional hit could technically mean like you somebody hired a hitman. A professional hitman had nothing to do with being Italian or the mob or anything like that. But blowing up a car, as I said, that scene in Casino, it's kind of historically and traditionally, if you're going to put a pipe bomb in someone's car, that is a traditionally mob-related type of murder. Hmm. And, you know, there were whispers and it was a little bit known around town that Gary had in the past had dealings with the mob. Realistically, the casinos in Vegas, which we did not get into, this would have been a perfect episode to do it, but we didn't were really kind of built on the mob. The mob started the mafia, the Italian mob mafia, had a had a heavy hand in a lot of the casino world in Vegas. And Gary had business dealings in Vegas with a lot of these casinos. So there was essentially rumors, which many were true, that Gary did do business with alleged mafia members. Well, it's going to be on the lookup list of part two, of mm -hmm. Triano, casinos, yep. and the Italian mafia slash mob. Exactly. Don't miss what happens next in today's episode. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. 
The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So um, Gene Reedy is a Pima County investigator and he he seemed to feel that it was definitely a professional hit and likely from the mob. He said um, Gary was definitely a target. Uh, Gary suspected that he was being followed. He had told friends and family that he was being followed weeks before the murder by an individual that was driving a green Jeep type SUV. Triana was being followed by a green... SUV. Gary thought he was being followed for several weeks leading up to this murder, whether it's a professional hit or not. We don't know at this point. Okay. And then Detective Gamber said there are a lot of people who look at these circumstances and say this appears to be a classic mob hit. So that's just, you know, again, the casino reference, the fact he uh, his first business was financed by Bonanno. I mean, I feel like I'm really like overdoing it here, but people felt... Especially for an Italian... that's true and you know what's funny is that Gary was like really not that Italian I don't have his like ancestry in front of me I believe he was of somewhat of Latino descent a little Native American and some Italian Mm -hmm. but I don't think he was like the majority was not Italian he just happened to have an Italian sounding surname exactly and I don't have this in uh, my notes or my script in front of me but I know that I read somewhere I'll have to find it I think it was in this book that I read about him that someone said that no Gary wasn't really Italian but people always assumed he was because he was tall he was dark dark hair dark eyes and he and his last name sounded Italian plus he did business with known kind of Italian people And so people would assume he was, and he let them, he like liked to let them assume that he was Italian and kind of uh, associated with the mob. So there was, there was also more than even just this that led people to believe that it may have been a mob hit. Uh, A good friend of Gary's is a Tucson family physician. I'm so interested. I want to know if this guy still lives or, or practices medicine here in Tucson. Probably not, but. Well, what's his name? um, His name is Dr. Lawrence D'Antonio. And he was fully convinced that mobsters killed Gary. He says that Gary owed them money and wouldn't pay. And in an interview, I want to say on Dateline that I saw, um, the interviewer asked uh, Dr. D'Antonio, was Gary Triano living a dangerous lifestyle? And Dr. D'Antonio said, oh, absolutely. Gary carried a gun at all times. And I've even seen proof that Gary Triano was on a, quote, kill list, There were a lot of names on this list and some of the names would come and go, but Gary Trano's name was always at the top. What kill list of maybe a mob or mafia situation? Which makes me think, okay, Dr. D'Antonio, like how are you, when did you get a chance to look at a mobster's kill list? Right, what list were you on or how are you affiliated? Exactly. Yeah. How could you know that Gary Trano is on a kill list unless you are also in some way associated with the mob or friends or something. So because of the nature of the murder and no other real leads at the time, authorities began to really lean into this theory that it was a mob hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have answers to that, but that's, that's yeah, that's where my brain went to. Tune into the lookup list. Yeah, really. 
Uh, it's going to be mob heavy. Mm-hmm. Be or up. mafia. Or mafia. Same. Do you have that on the look of mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Gary had, unfortunately, a lot more enemies than just the mob. Remember all those people we talked about in the last episode that he owed money to, like a fit 30K to a fitness club, a 60K to Vegas casinos, his ex-wife, I think he owed like a million dollars, just thing, and even his own mother. And then according to Pam, Gary's second ex-wife, Gary had borrowed capital from a group of Mexican investors and provided his his business partner, Gary's business partner's land in Sabino Canyon as collateral. So he borrowed this money and said, you know, if I don't pay you back, you can have this land in Sabino Canyon, which mm. is, uh, we lived there for a while up in the northeast part of Tucson. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gary also personally told them, like, I will guarantee that I will pay you back the $2 million. I don't really know what that means. Just say, he said, I guarantee I'll pay it to you. Eh. Um, don't take people's words. Right. He claimed that he had uh, personal connections that he would make sure that he got the money back. But when Gary's part, business partner filed for bankruptcy and the uh, investors, these Mexican investors lost that collateral, that Sabino Canyon land, they came after Gary for the money. Pam said, of course, Gary didn't have it. And these Mexican investors sued him for fraud. So that's just like one brief example of like the Gary was pissing people off all over town. And we didn't really get into this last time, but the um, the Tohono O'odham Nation, he also upset quite a bit. How so? So... The Tohono O'odham tribe wanted to sue Gary and I believe did eventually sue Gary because he, so he helped fund their casinos and bingo halls before the tribes were were legally allowed to run these establishments on their own. So Gary and his partners apparently obtained a $1.2 million loan for the Tohono O'odham tribe so they could build their first bingo hall in 1983. And they created this management arm to run the bingo in exchange for 40% of the profit. So Gary and his business partner were going to get 40% of whatever uh, the Tohono O'odham tribe made from these bingo halls. Hmm. But when the tribal leaders wanted to keep more profits for themselves, because they felt that was an unfair amount since they were doing all the work and running these casinos, and then Gary and his partner are taking almost half, a dispute ensued that escalated, especially when under new legislation, tribes were then legally allowed to run this on their own. Gary could no longer keep these profits or control the gaming facilities. He had to defer and and give like all ownership back to these tribes who now could run these operations on their own and get all the money that Gary earned. Gary did not, obviously did not like this. He's making a bunch of money off of them. But the law was on the Tohonotum side and um, they won the lawsuit. And so Gary's annual income plummeted due to this lawsuit from a reported 1.5 million in 1992 to 107,000 in 1993 just from these bingo casino yeah. halls yeah he was making that much money so he he lost i mean what is that a million i mean 1.4 million dollars he lost a year most of it yeah. essentially he basically lost everything so obviously he made enemies in them in that he was fighting them. You know, the law changed and he still tried to control the casinos and they so much so that they had to sue him and take him to court in order to get him to stop kind of bullying them for this money, which initially when I was reading about all this, I was like, oh, well, 
no, no shit. They probably hate him. Like but in were, the beginning, they didn't because he started this up and gave them 57% or he got 40%. They got 60. Oh, okay. So, so in the beginning, sure. But when the law changed, instead of just saying the law has changed, yes, let, let me, me relinquish my yeah. control. You take the money. Sucks mm. for me. Good for you. He fought them on it. So initially I was like, oh, well, they must be so upset with him. Of course, that's a that seems like a viable you know, person to who might want to kill him. But realistically, they won. They got the control back. They got to keep all their so money. So why would they kill him? Exactly. Kind of rules them out in terms of wanting to murder him. So pissed off business associates weren't Gary's only enemies. Thanks to a very bitter divorce, Gary had made a vicious adversary in his ex-wife, Pamela Phillips. In the fall of 1994, Pam, so they were divorced at this point, Pam wanted to move to Aspen from Tucson. Apparently, her and Gary had a, a place in Aspen that they maybe rented out sometimes when they weren't there, and then they used it as a vacation home sometimes. And so she wanted to get out of Tucson. And so she apparently sold her house, which he had not since moved out of since they got divorced. It was their house now, her house, quickly, like a short sale. And he was out of the country. He was apparently on a tr on a business trip to Mexico. So he had no idea that this was happening. You said that very like business. I don't know because he, I just know that his some of his business is a little shady. So I said it in a shady way. Mm -hmm. So he was on a business trip in Mexico and she did a short sale in her house, took the money, rented a Ford Explorer Eddie Bauer edition. And she kind of took off into the night with the kids to a rental property on a street called Snow Bunny Lane in Aspen. Now, the way you told it, or maybe the way I heard it, makes it sound like she absconded. Yeah, like the fled night. a yeah. little bit. Well, I don't know specifically what their um, custody agreement was at this point, but I'm guessing that she couldn't just take their children and leave to a different state without his knowledge. Well, yeah, I wonder what the custody agreement was. Well, remember I said that 93 was a really bad year because not only did he get divorced and filed for bankruptcy, but they were embroiled in like a bitter custody battle. Yeah. So I guess I wonder if by 94 they had navigated and figured out what that was. Maybe, but I am I believe that it did not allow her to move the children out of state without his knowledge. Yeah, it, that makes pretty sense. Much. So not only did she take his kids away, just moved them without him knowing and then made it apparently very difficult. Like he wanted to visit them. He wanted to see them. And she'd be like, oh, it's not a good weekend. Oh, yeah, you can come next week. Oh, I changed my mind. You can't. So it made it pretty tough for him to see them. Uh, he around this time was also voicing concerns to his friends that Pam was threatening him, that he would never see the kids again. And he also thought that someone was stalking him. So he's dealing with that he can't see his kids. They're gone. They've moved out of state. His ex-wife's not letting him come visit them. She's also threatening him that if, you know, he doesn't kind of back off, then he'll never see them again. And then he also thought someone was stalking him at the same time. Oh, this is haunting me. And you may need to cut this because this has nothing to do with this. But mm -hmm. that Idaho 4... I just listened to a po the Dateline podcast today. Okay, well, uh, I haven't, but I watched or I listened to the Going West and then I watched the, the 2020. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the young ladies had contacted her dad and her mom 
over a handful of months saying like, I feel like someone's watching me. Oh. And like never was definitive, never was totally freaked out, but said, I feel like someone's watching me. Okay. But I have another question that's more. Wait, can I say something that so relates to that? So the next quote that I have is that his ex-girlfriend. Robin. Robin. Yeah. Before he died. Uh, I have a quote from her that says, he never identified anyone in particular. It was just a feeling he had, a foreboding. Once Gary flew his private airplane back from Aspen to Tucson and he noticed a second aircraft following him. It made him so nervous that he landed in the White Mountains and stayed at a cabin overnight because he was afraid that he was being followed. Well, that's exactly kind of the vibe that that thing, that um, the Idaho 4, because she was very kind of vague because... There was just something more internal. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe she saw a little thing here or here. You know, okay, this is the last thing I'll say, and then you can ask your next question. But the other night when I was driving home from visiting Mark at the hospital, I took, you know, I took Grant and then I turned on Campbell and then I turned on another street and another. I was taking um, a main road, then a side street and then back to a main road. And it was just because that's what Google told me to do. So that's why I was doing it. Anyways, I noticed because I thought it was a cop car behind me. So I was aware of it. And I kind of like looked and I was like, oh, it's like a white explorer. And it was following me and it turned right. And then it turned left. And then it turned right. And then it turned left. And then it turned down, you know, I'm going down Campbell and then turned down my little side street, which is a small little side street. Yeah. Probably not a ton of people turning there. And then it turned down there. And I, it made me so nervous that I drove past my house and went around the block. Well, that's smart. That's being aware. And went around the block. And then I pulled over on the side of the road and kind of like watched to see where it went. And it turned it turned into a different place. So it was not following me, but that felt um, relevant to this. And then I think I took it too far. So let's jump back in. Okay. So all that to say that Gary was concerned someone was stalking him and we can see how easily, maybe someone was, but I also, sometimes you get a little thought in your head and you're like, Ooh, is that person following me? Well, also he had maybe perhaps some reasons, yeah, some unsavory deals or unpaid back debts. I love the way that sounds. Unsavory deals. That's totally true. Yes. I'm not a reason to be a bit hypervigilant. Right. I'm not, I don't have any unsavory business deals. Me neither. Right. So um, Robin said, her quote continued. She said, he grew increasingly paranoid about Pam's phone calls, said they had an eerie quality to them that made him uncomfortable, so much so that he thought it wise to cancel their life insurance. But Pam owned the policy. And because she faithfully paid the premium each month, Seaboard Life had no authority to terminate the ownership. So apparently he put her in control of his life insurance policy. Even while he was still alive. Yeah, he was still alive. So I'm not I'm not sure why, but this takes us to a very important point in this story, the life insurance. So Gary did have a large life insurance policy, $2 million to be exact, which would be a lot today and was certainly a lot back in 1996 or 93, 94. So the policy was taken out in 1992 before they got divorced and supposedly Gary and Pam collectively together took this policy out and Pam was made the beneficiary. And while that meant that if Gary died, Pam would get the money. What I read is that it also meant that after they were divorced, for whatever reason, she was responsible for paying the premium on the policy, which seems incorrect if she was just the beneficiary. I feel like she must have been the policy holder. Yeah, right? because if because I don't pay on Michael's Life insurance. Life. But you're the beneficiary. Death insurance. (laughs) I don't pay anything on Michael's life insurance. I'm the beneficiary. And 
if we got divorced, I am certain that I would do nothing and it would I would no longer be the beneficiary. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think she was kind of the what you say the policy, policy holder. holder. Yeah. Yeah. So for a while she did pay this premium, but things then began to get really tight for Pam. Uh, if you recall, I said, I think in part one, that she quit working after the two got married. She did start a website called starbabies.com. It was like an astrology website. Uh, you can't find it anymore. It's no longer oh, available. Yeah, it's mm. no longer available. So after the divorce, she wasn't working. All she had was this astrology website. Money was tight for her. And Gary filed bankruptcy when they got divorced as well. So Gary didn't have really much money now either. But lucky for Pam, she had good friends. Well, she had gullible friends, certainly. Good is debatable. Pam's friend, good friend Joy, decided to help Pam out during this hard time by making the payments on Gary's life insurance policy for a while because Pam was unable to make them. That seems a little wonky to me. Like, totally. Pam had other bills, sure. I assume. Mm -hmm. So Joy said... Quote, it was the least I could do to help out a friend. I never really questioned why Pam owned the policy or why she was listed as the beneficiary and not her children. I just did what I was asked to do. I agree with you. Wonky is the perfect word. Like, that's a weird thing. Could you pay my mortgage? Could you pay my electric? Could my you buy me groceries? Bill. My phone bill? Sure. All of those things. If I had money and my friend was in need and didn't, uh, no question. Done. Or here just you go. Uh, cut me a check. Yeah. Here's 10 grand. Yeah. You know, fine. But can you specifically pay my husband's life insurance policy? I would raise a small red flag in my brain. Although Joy was very kind to be paying Gary's life insurance for a while, Unfortunately, she did miss a few payments, including the payment that was due the day that Gary was murdered, November 1st. Joy forgot to pay it. I think she forgot to pay the one previous to that as well. So she didn't pay October and she didn't pay November. But someone did pay November. Pam. Pam. Pam somehow managed to make that final payment on the day of Gary's murder, hoping to keep the policy intact before Seaboard Life canceled it for failure to pay. Yeah, that raises some <clears throat> questions. So let's recap. Gary died on November 1st, 1996. The policy payment on his life insurance that Pam made, she paid it apparently on November 1st and it posted on November 6th, which ironically was Gary's birthday. On November 15th, 14 days after Gary's tragic murder, Pam filed a claim on Gary's death for that, to get that insurance money. The two mil. Yep. Slightly suspicious. Y yes. 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 Did Joy just fall out of touch with her, her schedule, her to-do list, her, her income, or was Joy involved? Can't answer that yet. Understood. So Pam claimed that she had nothing to do with Gary's murder because obviously, okay, at this point, detectives have seen, know all of this, that the policy hadn't been paid for a few months and suddenly it was paid. And then literally two weeks after he was tragically murdered, 
she was like, give me that money. Also could be coincidental, which isn't enough to, right? Sure. Like, um, obviously not enough to convict someone, but it's not even also, really enough to make somebody an official suspect. It could be enough to bring someone in for questioning, I mm. imagine. Yes. And it, and it was. So there was no hard evidence exactly tying her to this case or this murder, but it, it was enough to question her. Plus that's his ex-wife kind of the first go-to person, at least right. I, what I believe is. Or ex-spouse. Yeah. So Detective Gamber, he was like open to potential leads and he questioned Pam and said, did Gary have any specific enemies that you know of? Pam's reply, he had many, many enemies. Oh. Pam was adamant that Gary's death had everything to do with how he lived his life. So Detective Gamber wasn't 100% convinced that Pam was innocent, but he couldn't ignore that Gary's closest friends had said that he was acting differently in the weeks leading up to his death. According to a good friend of Gary's, Cola Janoff, she said, quote, he acted more paranoid than usual. He thought he might have a stalker. He worried about his former wife's associations and he started carrying a gun. So Detective Gamber began to form, instead of, focusing kind of on the suspects because there there was none and there were so many all at the same time. It was like there was no one specific that, that linked up. And then there were so many because he had made so many quote unquote enemies along the way. So he decided, Detective Gamber decided to form a victim profile on Gary instead and kind of start from that standpoint. He learned that everyone who knew Gary, like I said earlier, knew that Gary never locked his car or his home. He even often left his car keys in the car's ignition. Detective Gamber also learned that Gary kept a schedule that was super, super routined, which made him an easy target. You know, he did the same thing every day. So he was easily trackable. And then according to um, Gary's niece, Melissa, he also dated a lot of women. And Melissa, his niece, said that he often was looking for someone to confide his deepest secrets in. And he would confide them in kind of these women that were um, super casual and, and he would see once or twice and then never again. But he would, so he felt like it was safe to tell them all of these secrets because eh, I'm never going to see him again. They don't really know me, whatever. And I read that and I thought, okay, well, like, what does that matter? But realistically, well, what do you think it matters? I mean, I should ask you that. What do you think that that matters? Because I understand that thought process of like, this is a one-off or maybe I'm not going to make a lifelong relationship with this person. So they're here for a week or a month or, or even a handful of months or, or an a evening. night. Yeah. It allows me to share, something. to share something. But what do you think that means for the investigation? There's a lot of people to interview. Yes. God, I'm so impressed that you saw that because it took me a minute to get there when I was researching this. It meant for the investigation that there, the list of potential suspects was very, very long. Over the next decade, this investigation looked into everyone from the usual suspects like the various mob associates that Gary was connected to, to business partners or groups of business partners that he had scorned and investors to random tips that were called in, which there were many. It ran the gamut. Like these detectives looked into everything and everyone. But let's go back in time for a moment, because strangely, some very pertinent evidence that would ultimately point detectives in the direction of Gary's 
killer was discovered a full month before Gary was ever murdered. So in October of 1996, when was Gary killed? November 196. An officer with the Yorba Linda, California Police Department received a citizen's complaint about a Plymouth Voyager that was parked kind of weirdly, like crookedly on the road in a very wealthy residential neighborhood in Yorba Linda. The doors were locked on the car. There was no sign of a break-in. And the license plate identified the vehicle as a rental that had been reported stolen from Aspen. So the officer impounded this van and contacted the Pitkin County Sheriff's Department in Aspen. So the Sheriff's Department in Aspen. like Because that's where the car originated or was registered. from, yeah. yeah. Um, A rental car that had been stolen out of Aspen. So after they impounded the car and they went through the vehicle, the Yorba Linda police found some interesting things in this car. You don't want to miss what happens next in today's murder story. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsors. They found documents that related to Pamela Phillips and Gary Trano's divorce. They found love letters from someone named Pam to To whom? Someone named Ronald. They found a map of Tucson, Arizona. They found a list of Gary Triano's known business associates and the kind of cars that they drove. They found a receipt for a Ramada Inn down the street from Gary Triano's house in Tucson. And they found a sawed-off shotgun. Uh, Oh. But remember, at this point, this is October. Gary's still alive. But they didn't find this in October. Yeah, they did. Oh, they did. They yeah. found it also. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. They found the car. They got the complaint. They found the car. They impounded. They went through it. They found so all this So even this, this stuff. is all highly odd, suspicious, weird. weird. There's nothing to really connect it to. Why is this car that was stolen from Aspen now found in California with all this shit about these random people in Tucson. And there's been no... No murder. Nothing's happened. Or no crime, even. No crime. Except for the rental car being, you know, uh, stolen out of Aspen. No major crime. Yeah. So, on November 1st, 1996, the detective who was investigating the, the items in this van, who had gone through this van, who had gotten the kind of citizen's report, he was watching the news. And he saw that a bombing had occurred in Tucson involving a man named Gary Triano. And he's sitting on his couch watching the news. He's like, Triano, Triano, I know that name. And suddenly the van that he had recently impounded and gone through flashed in his mind, the map of Tucson, the divorce papers, Pam's love notes, the list of Gary's business associates. All of a sudden, the pieces came together for this detective, Detective Crawley, who was in California watching this news story. And he called up Detective Gamber in Tucson and said, hey, I have a suspect in a stolen car case here in Aspen. He's also involved in some fraud. And his name is Ron Young. Hmm. So 
According to Detective Gamber, where it becomes more interesting is when we actually interview Pamela Phillips and we say, who's Ron Young? And she basically minimizes their relationship. She said, quote, oh, he's somebody who did some financial work for me. She doesn't mention the fact that he's been accused of fraud and she seems visibly shaken by the question. Nervous, awkward. This is before she... I don't know if she is, but this is before she's ever taken into custody for questioning or this is? I believe this is during questioning. questioning. Because okay. at this point, they, you know, the detective in, in California. There was that strong connection. Has called yeah. the detective in, Detective Gamber in Tucson. Is like, I think I have a suspect. And, and there's love letters from Pam in there. So now the detective's like, okay. Well, there's a link here. Who is this dude with a sawed-off shotgun and and a and a map of Triano's like of Tucson and Triano's business associates? And so Pam like very much minimized it. So detectives were suspicious to say the least. But still, there was no hard evidence linking Pam Iran to the bombing. There's there's evidence linking them to each other, to Gary, to you know, it's all fucking weird at this point. So who really was this Ronald Young? So Ronald Young was a small-time criminal that Pamela developed a relationship with after she moved to Aspen, though the two would later claim that he was simply a business advisor for her. It became pretty evident to the detectives that their relationship had become romantic, at least at some point in time. Uh, It was complicated. Yeah. So according to Pam, um, she says, quote, I met him at a party next door, the duplex next door to me in Aspen. He was very tall. He looked like a skyscraper. He was a business manager to people that were at this barbecue I was attending. And I told him I could use some help with my business. And so that's kind of what ended up happening. So that's how their relationship, according to Pamela, kind of began. But that information regarding the extent of Pam and Ron's relationship didn't come out until later. At this point, in November of 96, immediately following Gary's murder, really all that they had was this link between Pam and Ron and Gary based on what they found in that stolen rental car, which certainly was enough evidence to want to question Pam and Ron, which they did with Pam. But when they went to go and find Ron and bring him in for questioning, He had seemingly vanished and was nowhere to be found. They found his van. They knew who he was. They found all these things in his van. They were questioning Pam. Gary's dead. What the fuck is happening? Let's go find Ron. He's gone. But hold on. Let's get back to Pam for a minute. Now, keep in mind as I share this next bit of information that detectives did not discover this until much later in the investigation. So although what I'm about to tell you happens in 1997 and the years that followed, detectives didn't know this until later on. So apparently on January 7th, 1997, this is a year and two months after Gary dies, Pam deposited over $2 million into a bank account. We're presuming that's maybe his life insurance. Thank you. And then over the next months, the coming months after that, she proceeded to shuffle that money around like crazy. She opened multiple accounts, multiple money market accounts, different bank accounts. She took out $500 here, put $1,000 here, pulled out cash and kept it in a drawer in her home. She wrote checks to herself. She was depositing, withdrawing, just very kind of questionable money behavior. Like, why are you moving this money around 
so, so much. Was she an Aspen? She was an Aspen. Yeah. And it, it seemed that she was potentially trying to conceal some cash conversions that she was sending to Ron. She was kind of running through this exhausting payment schedule, paying Ron about $1,400 to $1,600 several times a month. But no one knew for what exactly. And it was really hard to track. Like it took them for, it took uh, the detectives forever to kind of figure this out because it was like, there was just so much activity happening. Um, Which kind looks of, kind of suspicious in its own right, even if, and I get the, the thing she's trying to, make the tracking of it very difficult, right? Right. So Ron didn't like that Pamela was, you know, she was moving all this money around and she was making interest because it was a lot of money, $2 million, even though it was split up over various bank accounts. Ron knew that Pam was going to be making money on this. And he wasn't seeing any of it. And he wasn't getting any of that. He did not like that. So I also don't know why. At this point, he should be getting any of it, right? You do not know why. Right. Right. And yeah, I cannot tell you yet. Right. But that kind of gives me an insight. Sure. So he didn't like it. It began to cause tension tension between the two. They were bickering. And then Ron began to threaten Pam. He began saying, I want more money, more money, more money. By the end of October 1998, Pam had paid Ron an estimated $153,540 and apparently still owed him, although we don't know for what yet, $246,460. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm going to make an educated guess that sure. he was the one that pushed that button. Maybe. Because otherwise, unless he's giving her a lot of like unwanted on his part, sexual favors. Like, what else is she paying him for? Well, right. So Pam, for all intents and purposes, she was saying, like, he was her financial advisor and he did, you know, helped her with her business and things like that. that could be it. He advised her on certain business deals. Sure. Not Mm. buying it, but okay. For the next few years after, this is October 1998, she'd paid him over 150 grand. And now they're fighting. Ron does not like that she's making interest. And so for the next few years, apparently, according to Pam, she lived in fear that Ron was going to come after her or her kids. And Ron lived in fear that Pam was going to screw him over and not pay him the remaining money that they had apparently agreed upon for whatever reason, which at this point, I think we can all assume he pressed the button. She paid him to kill her husband. Right. And I bet he lived in fear, not only forget about, I don't know, forget about, but he lived in fear that he wouldn't get what's due to him. Right. And also he wouldn't get what's due to him and then be Be turned in. Yes. And remember, Ron is kind of in the wind for all of this. I don't know what in the wind means. He's he's floating. He's like a leaf. He's gone. He's disappeared. No one can find him. So for the next few years, Pam lived in fear that Ron would come after her or her kids. And Ron, so by early November 2001, an article surfaced in Arizona's Tucson Weekly that threatened to expose both Pam and Gary. According to this article called Requiem for a Heavyweight, Pam remained a, quote, loose end, not completely excluded as a suspect, and described her 
quote, boyfriend Ron as a bad guy, a slippery villain who is wanted on weapons and fraud charges in Aspen. She's kind of throwing him under the bus, no? I don't know if she threw him under the bus. Like Ron or the was, article did. Yeah, Ron was wanted for, you know, he's he supposedly stole that rental car. And I believe he was wanted for other kind of fraud charges. He he was a criminal That's through not and shocking. through. Right. So it I don't think that it necessarily had to do with this, but he he was connected to Pam. There were all these weird things in his van. He was a known criminal. Gary's dead. And Ron is like gone. Nobody can find him. So this is all very suspicious. You should clip that whole part and put that as the like the gist of do you want to hear about episode eight? <laughs> Ron true. was gone. He was a con. Like also the Tucson Weekly Requiem for a Heavyweight. It's a great article. Was this 1998? Oh, you found it. 2001. 2001. You yeah, found it. Really okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. Um, So we're going to flash forward again here. Because really in these, and I know it does seem like we're moving quickly from like 96, Gary's murdered. And then all of a sudden now we're about to flash forward to 2005, but not a whole lot's happening during this time. You know, detectives have have kind of exhausted their potential leads. Uh, Ronald Young is nowhere to be found. There's nothing to hardcore connect Pam to the murder, to any of this, because all of the movement of the money and the payments to Ron weren't discovered until later. So we're Let's flashing, flash forward. Yeah, we're flashing forward. So flash forward to 2005. And this is a year that brought about several breaks in Gary's case. It was the year that bomb experts Tony May and Agent Tom Mangan of the ATF decided to review cold cases, one of them being Gary's, because this is a, this is almost 10 years later. So at this point, it's considered a cold case. So Tony and Tom determined that the bomb builder was an amateur. They explained that from the battery to the fact that a remote control system was used, it was somebody that was familiar with perhaps model boats or model airplanes. But because of the sloppy workmanship, they determined that the bomb was probably not the work of a mob hit because a mob hit would have had a much more professional pipe bomb made. They've done it again and, and again and there again. You go. It would not have been this sloppy. It would not have been this amateur. It's consistent. So it finally eliminated that theory that had been kind of a, a an unknown for 10 years. That was gone. Done. That's hmm. no longer a theory. It's not the mob. Which takes out a whole slew of ton of people. And on November 19th, 2005, an episode of America's Most Wanted profiled Ronald Young, who was wanted for forgery and embezzlement. The episode also mentioned his suspected or potential involvement in Gary Triano's death. Two days later, Ronald Young was arrested in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He served a 10-month sentence in federal prison for weapon possession before being extradited back to Aspen. After his arrest, investigators searched his apartment and discovered that Ron was strangely meticulous when it came to keeping records. So at this point, you know, he went to jail for something, no, nothing to do with Gary, but it allowed police to search his shit. And they found records of phone calls and email correspondence between Ronald and Pamela that were directly related to Gary's murder. In what way? What did they Correspondences say? between the two over the years showed numerous arguments over money, 
that Ronald thought he was owed from Pamela. Plus, Ronald kept detailed records of all the money that he had received from Pamela over the years. And he didn't just keep extensive financial records. He also recorded dozens of hours of telephone conversations. One conversation in particular, Ronald talking to Pamela, he says, if I ever found out that you compromised me for your benefit, that would be really unfortunate for you because there's just plenty of stuff that I could literally dig out of the ground and you'd be a fried duck. Another startling piece of audio tape that they found is when Ronald said, well, I'll tell you, you're going to be very serious when you sit in a women's prison for murder. I feel like that was... I don't want to say smart of him because he's a killer, a murderer, a co-conspirator, a, a, a criminal. And also, yeah, not dumb of him to keep phone records and recordings. Yes. This audio evidence plus the documents found in the rented van back in 1996 were finally collectively enough to kind of make a case against Ronald and potentially Pamela. So in October 2008, 12 years after Gary's murder, Ronald was charged with Gary Triano's murder. And Pamela Phillips was next in Detective Gamber's sights. In addition to all of the evidence linking her to Ron, Laura Chapman, who I believe I shared a quote from in the first part, an old friend of Pamela's, came forward to tell police a story that she was too frightened to tell them for many, many years. Laura claims that back in 1993, Shortly after Pamela and Gary separated, Gary was acting crazy one night, threatening Pamela, screaming at her, and waving a gun around. Pamela called Laura and one other friend and said, please come over. I'm scared. I need you to come over. And when they got there, she said to both of them, you know what? I should just hire someone and have Gary taken out. And, you know, then I can collect on the insurance policy. I have thoughts, but I can't say them. I mean, it's not exactly concrete evidence. It's not It's not concrete evidence at all, but it also does not look good. Well, no, but I think the concrete evidence is whatever Ronald Young had the voice record, the phone of call course, recordings. Of course, that's the concrete yeah. evidence. This is just, if it's actually true, this is hearsay. But it, if there's even an ounce of truth to it, it does not bode well. For the entire case. It doesn't. It also, if it was just that, I don't think that would hold up in court because plenty of women or humans say, I want to hire a hitman. I want to kill my person. Of course. So Detective Gamber is like, he's like, it's not just Ronald. It's Pamela too. All the money she paid him. Come on. So he's, he's ready to go after her. But he can't find her. She's not in Aspen any longer. She's halfway around the world living in Europe. Switzerland, specifically, with her daughter, who was now a student there, supposedly. And as if this case hadn't dragged on long enough, it would take a full additional year before Pamela was actually found in Europe, now living in Austria, and then arrested. Like extradited back to America? One year later, in 2010, she was finally extradited back to the United States. And while all this was going on with Pamela, Ronald Young was busy standing trial for Gary's murder. During that trial, he denied everything. He never implicated Pamela. But in the end, the records and the audio tapes just did him in. A jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. And on February 19th, 2014, 
17 years after Gary blew up on that day at La Paloma, one of the biggest trials to ever hit Tucson began. Pamela Phillips' murder trial. And what was the outcome? The prosecution's case was very straightforward. Pamela was portrayed as a financially desperate woman willing to kill her husband for $2 million of life insurance. Um, The prosecutor, Nicole Green, said the only person who stood to gain any benefit from Gary Trano's death was Pamela Phillips. The defense, of course, disagreed, claiming that it was an angry past business associate, um, possibly someone related to Bonanno or another Italian Uh, associate named Neil McNeese that had mob ties and that kill list that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But no one could find that kill list. Plus this Neil McNeese that the defense was talking about died in 2002 from a drug overdose. So there was no kind of, there was nothing there. So ultimately it all came down to what the jury thought. And after 13 hours of deliberation, the jury found Phillips guilty of conspiracy to commit first degree murder. And a month later, she was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. So this was nine years ago-ish? Yes. And she's still in prison here in Arizona? Yes. She is incarcerated at the Arizona Department of Corrections, Perryville. Perryville. In the Lumley unit. Ron Hmm. Young is 78 years old now, and he is behind bars at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Tucson in the Santa Rita unit. Pam still to this day claims her innocence. She's given several interviews, which we will have to post. It's pretty interesting. Her lawyer really stood by her on this. I mean, kind of obviously, he said he blamed the media for her guilty conviction. He said the pretrial publicity and inaccurate media reports allowed the jury to make up their mind before the trial. And maybe it swayed some of them. And also, I think, I don't know. I was going to say the facts are the facts, but the facts can be swayed. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, Gary Triano's family ended up suing Pam and Ron for wrongful death and were awarded $10 million, though, from what I understand, they've received far less than that at this point. So also, they'd probably rather receive their family member. Of course, always. And that is a wrap on Gary Triano. And as always, our thoughts go out to the Triano family and everyone who is involved in this. And uh, with that, we'll say good night and good luck. Bye, guys. Bye bye. See you next time. And if you want to see pictures of the victims, the murderers, and any additional related images, head over to our Instagram right now. Our handle across all social media platforms is death, then the letter X, and then Southwest spelled out. So D-E-A-T-H-X-S-O-U-T-H-W-E-S-T, Death X Southwest. Death by Southwest is a Cavalry Audio production. Hosted by Jenna Schneider and Margot Carmichael. Produced by Margot Carmichael. Associate produced by Jenna Schneider. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Audio editing and sound design by Revision Sound. Music by Soundstripe. And a special thanks to Edward R. Murrow for letting us borrow his famous sign-off phrase, good night and good luck.